Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Gatekeeper. Wait, what's that? Why did I say welcome back? Oh, I get what's going on here. You've never listened to this podcast before. Well, guess what? It's a serialized podcast. So there are multiple episodes available for download. You should check them all out in the order of your choice. For example, I know one listener who listened to episode one, then three, then four, then they went back to two, then six, and then five. Another listener started on episode three, shot way ahead to episode six, then back to five, four, then all the way to the beginning, number one, and then finished it with number two. Both listeners were happy with the order in which they listened. The question is, what order will you be happy with, and will you share your positive experience on iTunes in the form of a review? Gatekeeper. So whether this is your first time listening to this podcast, or your seventh, or your 83rd, I wanted to share with you that I've learned a lot in my 15 years in comedy. And I want to start this episode by sharing two quick formative moments that help shape my philosophy when it comes to producing live comedy. All right, for this first one, we're going to need some cool jazz. Now, can you actually find a track? Like, find an actual track? Uh, okay. One night a few years ago, I was out walking with a friend down La Cienega here in Los Angeles, and we came upon a bar called The Roger Room. It was already 1 a.m., so I suggested a nightcap, and my friend agreed it was a sensational idea. We walked inside. The lighting was dim. Prohibition-era jazz was playing. The mood was perfectly enchanting. But I looked at the drink menu and quickly saw that the cocktail prices were significantly out of my price range. I hesitated, took another look around at the bar, listened closely to the music, then turned back to my friend and said, I'm about to drop $15 that I don't have because right now I feel fucking cool. I feel so cool. I felt cool because someone had taken the time to curate every aspect of the bar to ensure just that. I wasn't dropping 15 bucks for a drink. I was also paying for the atmosphere, the feeling, and the experience. This certainly wasn't a new idea in the universe, but in that moment, I distilled the experience mm, no, down to its very cool. capitalistic essence, a monetary value. Mm, People want cool. to pay for something extraordinary especially in Los Angeles where there are dozens of comedy shows a night, let alone hundreds of other entertainment options to choose from. And so yes, booking an amazing lineup of comics is an important aspect to what I do, but next in line is making sure that the entire experience from the moment someone parks their car to the moment they leave is second to none. That means picking good music, creating distinctive moods with the lighting, monitoring the rooms for hecklers, ensuring the door staff and box office are friendly, and about 7,000 other details that most people don't even think of. There are dozens of moving parts to the club with two showrooms, a bar and a restaurant, and a full staff every night. So nailing every aspect in every room every night is a challenge. But between myself and our amazing management and staff here, that's always the ultimate goal. People consume live comedy as an escape, and I personally want the escape to be enchanting. Which brings me to my second formative moment. Meeting Todd Glass. <clears throat> you can tell we're professional, you know how? We're coughing. <clears throat> That's what professional people do. 
For anyone not in the know, Todd Glass is one of the most respected and beloved comedians in the world and a fixture here at the Hollywood Improv. If you've ever been to a show here, you know that he's in the video played at the top of every show, telling people the golden rule for a live comedy audience. Laugh, shut up, laugh, shut up, laugh, shut up. I was a fan of Todd's, but had never met him before. So when the GM of the Improv at the time told me that Todd was on the phone and wanted to talk to me, I got nervous. Why did Todd Glass want to talk to me? I'd only been working at the club a couple months at the time, and I was still getting my feet wet booking the 50-seat lab showroom. The lab is now a beautiful cabaret showroom with a full bar, but at the time it was a black box theater, falling apart at the seams. I picked up the phone. Todd told me he was coming to do a set on Eddie Pepitone's Bloodbath show, one of the first shows I brought to the room, and he wanted to come down and help me whip the room into shape. I obliged, and 24 hours later, the two of us were scouting the room together, looking for improvements we could make. I could tell this was a very serious business for him. The next day, he brought in a table, rugs, and lamp to make the green room cozier, tablecloths and candles for the showroom, and more candles, a framed welcome chalkboard, and incense for the lobby. He'd also inspired me to go through my parents' garage where I found two lamps and paintings to hang on the walls. For what likely amounted to less than 75 bucks and a couple hours of work, the lab had transformed from a dingy little unloved side room to the enchanting escape that I'd always dreamed of. Todd had no financial incentive. He plays any room he wants to in LA. But his love and passion for comedy and the history of the improv, and more than anything else, the experience propelled him. Seeing that in him lit a fire under me that has only intensified in the five years since. And that is why I'm so excited to have him as a guest on the show. We talked a little bit about getting booked as a comic, but the bulk of this conversation is about the experience of a comedy show and venue. And I think just about anyone will be inspired by his passion. So whether you're a comedian or a booker or a show producer or really anyone that's creating anything, this episode is a great reminder that it doesn't take a lot of money to put in that extra effort that makes an experience exponentially better. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Sound effect. Hi, welcome to Gatekeeper. I am joined today by Todd Glass. Hi. Hi, Todd. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, actually. I got a new sh- t-shirt. Oh, yeah. The Gap. Good you know, that's when you put on a brand new t-shirt, it's clean. How new is it? I just bought it 20 minutes ago. Oh, shit. So you changed there in At the, the car? Gap. You're like, I'm going to wear this out? Mm-hmm. Mm. And they were very nice about it. Great. Um, well, I guess that's all the time yeah, we have. Yeah, this has um, been fun. I, I was excited for it, and it... How are you wearing a knit hat? Everybody's temperature is different. It's funny. I get, I do get it because your temperature is different than mine. But I still look over there, and you're wearing, and it's a cool hat, and you've got a, you got a cool shirt on yourself. But it's not hot for you. You have a uh, great head of hair. I don't, and so it was windy out. It was was windy out, and so I had to put something on my head just because there's no way I was going to keep a good hair day. Right. So uh, yeah. that's all the time we have. It is. So thanks a um, lot for listening. You're listening to Gatekeeper with Jamie Flan. You almost said flan. How do you know? Because you said flandom. Flandom. Um, I'm letting you lead. I'm not going to be one of those interviews that I take over. Because sometimes just my nature. I was kind of banking on it. In fact, I oh, you told you. Yeah, I was like, I'm well, just Whatever gonna... you want to talk about. Well, this uh, is a show. This is the seventh episode. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, pat on my back. Big pat on my back. Made it this far. Well, the... I just, well, yes. It's a, it's a show about booking. From uh, both sides of the table. So I wanted to show what, uh, let comedians know what it's like on the other side. From gatekeepers, bookers, uh, people that are in positions of saying yes and no. And so I thought I would talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. 
And then it's of course, hard to book a comedy club, I would imagine, even the best yeah. bookers, um, because you know they can't hire everybody. And hey, look, some people it is genuinely not that they don't like them. Sometimes uh, you don't get booked at a club; it has nothing to do with them not liking you. And obviously, other times it does. You're not their cup of tea. Um, Just going back to the beginning of your career and and your experiences in, in getting booked, not getting booked, what's worked for you, what hasn't. Okay. One other thing real quick, and I'm only going to make quick. Your listeners know what this room looks like that you're doing the podcast in? I think they do, but please describe it. Well, you should put a picture up online because it's a great room. It is just can't be any better. It's just got this old school, these big, thick theater, red, you know, uh, theater drapes on one wall and then the brick on the other wall and then the hardwood floors and the old leather sofas and the Ottomans and the mics are cool and this table we're doing the podcast is cool and the old picture of John Lennon when he was standing outside the improv is on one wall and this and shelves and shelves of books and books and books so it's a great atmosphere well coming here. from you that means the world alright shut up now listen <laughs> back to what you were saying when I started comedy what was your question well just booking I mean and, and you know entering the world of stand up when you did and Actually, why don't we go back? You just described this room. You've been coming to this club for how long? I've been coming to this club. And by the way, I'm turning my phone off. That's the only reason I'm looking at it. I've been coming to this club since 1990. I, I drove. Uh, I did not drive here. What I meant was I moved here from Philadelphia. And I was either, I went to the comedy store and they, uh, they passed on me. I was, you know, back then there were like the comedy store or here. You wanted one of them to make you your home club. Now it's nice, but it's not. There's so many venues, which is great. The, the new way is good. You know, the old way was the old way and the new way is the new way. So it's all great. But, um, so, but uh, I didn't get accepted at the comedy store and I came down here and uh, it was exciting. I mean, I had seen this place on television, the old show evening at the improv and, you know, there's a crazy electricity in there. You walk in, you see everybody. You see Jerry Seinfeld, you see Jay Leno, you see Bill Maher, you see Stephen Wright, you see Skippy from Family Ties. You know, you forget certain people <laughs> that was like, wow. And you get like this, you it's know. It's like the Mount Rushmore of comedy right there. Yeah. And and um, there, there, everybody was super friendly. I always thought the improv, even though corporate wise, they've made some changes over the years that I wasn't crazy about, um, which is all getting so much better in the last two well, years, but let me, yeah. let me finish. But it was always a good energy here. And I, and I think a lot of that came from Bud as much as, you know, Bud's Bud, you know, but you know, he, he's a character. There was a friendly energy here because of Bud, you were welcomed here. You could uh, eat dinner and uh, sign for it. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. And, or, and they would half price it no matter what. And then they would take it off your check when you got paid. But it was just nice to be able to do that. And the waiters were friendly. And there was always a good energy at the improv. And that never stopped. Even when aesthetically we didn't like some of the changes, um, that never stopped. I love that to this day. I don't know a friendlier, happier place than coming to the improv. And I'm talking the door guys, the wait staff, the waiters, the waitresses, you know, everybody here. This is a... This place is is great. Would you say that that's has something to do with how they've we've weathered the storm of comedy and how much it's changed and evolved? Uh, do you think the club has changed? Uh, I think the guts of the club do like comedy and care about it, so that trickles down. When I say they're nice, more importantly than to anybody, to the newer comedians, because you know, like you know, everyone's going to be nice to the more established comedians. That really doesn't mean that much. I, I think a lot of my excitement, yes, they're always nice to me when I was new. Uh, they're still nice to me, but the new, the new comedians, you know, I, I once had a new comedian tell me this and I loved it. Like he goes, 
sometimes when you go to these other comedy clubs, not always, not always, but if you're a newer comic and they don't know you, hey, you could be a new comic meaning a year or a new comic being 10 years, but they don't know you, a little cold at the door. And sometimes that's a slap in the face when maybe a doorman two nights ago is like, hey, come on in, because he knows you're a comic. So he once said to a doorman, this comedian that was telling me this story, a newer comedian, he goes, he goes, I'm a comic, the comedian said, which is an underground term that you would even know to say that, which leads to the end of this story. So uh, this is the comedian telling me this story, and he said the doorman just let him in. And then later when they were talking, he goes, when I said I was a comic, he goes, how did you know I was telling the truth? You know, which is a good question, mm-hmm. casual conversation. He goes, well, no one really knows that term, and I figure if once in a while someone slips in on me, overwhelmingly they're not lying, and it's better to make someone feel comfortable. And we were both like... Oh, that is the best, most well thought out answer. And I think most of the door guys here, most of them overwhelmingly have that attitude. So to me, that's why it's a friendly place. Because I watch, you can tell if someone respects comedy, not the way, I'm talking of road clubs, this club, not by the way they treat the more seasoned acts. Whether that seasoned act is me or whether it's, you know, someone like Zach Galvanakis walking in here or Sarah Silverman. Um you can tell if they love or care or respect comedy by the way they treat the new people. It's so apparent. And I'm watching from, a, from afar. I see the way you're treating the new people. Because when you really love comedy, of course you're going to treat the new comedians nice too. You're going to respect them. What they're doing is the hardest fucking thing in the world too. When you got here, what was it like? None of your business. Okay. No, what was it, what was what like? Well, you know a lot of the the struggles I have here as a booker is that one the biggest one that I mean I have so few spots. But were you were here, Bud was still booking. Bud was still booking, and uh, you know I, I I didn't get like I said it didn't I didn't get made a regular at the store, and then I came over here. I did a set, and on the way out, Bud Freeman was in the parking lot getting into his car, and he was like, oh, "Hello, Todd," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I remembered my name, of course." You're like, and he goes, "Call me on Monday, and then and I'll give you some spots." So remind me you're from Philly, so I remember. And I was like, "Oh, I think he," and then I called. And I just start getting spots every single week. Not only did I start getting spots here, but at that time there were like 13 road improvs, which they still booked out of here, mm-hmm. a, 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 a woman by the name of Deborah. And um, at that point, and then I started getting Dallas and San Francisco and then Tempe, two, two in Dallas. There was Addison and Dallas and Tempe. And then there was uh, Bray at one point, and then, uh, which is still there, and then Irvine. So I was like getting booked all over the place as a middle. So it was, it was. How long had he been doing comedy to that point? You know, that's a good question because I was thinking about that the other day. I started in high school. So 84, about six years, about six years. And how years. did he get that first set at the improv? Um, did you have to know someone at that you point? You know, my manager at the time, I didn't, it was, he was serving as my manager and, 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 and really being very, very helpful. He owned the club that I started at in Philadelphia. And um, his name was Steve, his name is Steve Young, and he moved out here. He still owned the club in Philly, but he moved out to Los Angeles to pursue uh, um, different, you know, things he's always wanted to do in, in comedy besides owning a comedy club. And he, you know, he knew what to do. He had owned a club, and Comedy Works in Philly was a very popular club, and um, so he just sort of arranged it. And I went up. I was so nervous and. And at that point, was Bud just booking seven nights a week? You came to the Improv. Yeah, there was there was sometimes three shows a night clear it. They bring in a second one, do three shows a night. They were great. And, you know, look, I'm not a big believer of back then, you know, and Mm -hmm, anything mm -hmm. like, oh, back then comedy changes. It morphs. Comedy is better now than it ever was. And that's not said in disrespect 
to George Carlin or whoever, Lenny Bruce or anybody. We want things to evolve. There is no desire for comedians that are either dead or 70 to go, I hope comedy stopped evolving, even though the unaware always do think that it is. You know, not not the aware. The aware, I'm sure in the 60s or the 70s went, hey, comedy's changing. But every generation, there's a bunch of people that go, yeah, can't do this anymore and you can't do that anymore. No, because we evolved past it. That's what comedy did. It made us grow. And now we're at another level. Now we take on new battles. The battles of today aren't the same battles they were. So the minute someone thinks comedy is not what it used to be, sometimes I get angry, but sometimes I get sad. <laughs> I get sad because I realize they're out of touch. They're out of touch. They're looking at it. They go, and they think in their head, no, I'm not. I, I, you're, you're, you're got out of touch. And, and you can't tell these people. I got into this discussion out here, what I call the playground, <laughs> the, the blacktop area. Sure. Me and my friend call it the playground. Um, with a comedian one night, he goes, he goes, there's no comedians like there were, you know? And I was like, I started naming comedians and no, ever I'm naming, he goes, ah, ah. I go, so you're like Frank Sinatra and those guys in the 60s or 70s that they went, ah, there's no good music anymore. And when you start naming the good music, well, they don't think it's good music. So there's a, it's a no-win situation. You go, what about the Beatles? What about, you know, of course, nobody else is coming to my mind right now. What about the Rolling Stones? What about, you know, David Bowie? And they're like, ah, ugh, ugh. Oh, well, I can't have this conversation with you because even if I name people that are good, you are unaware they're good. So um, what I meant to say was comedy I think is at a great place now, and mm -hmm. I think it's growing. So this is not a dissertation on the state of comedy, but it is this. When Bud Freeman ran this room, he ran it like a theater, meaning you didn't talk. And even though he got made fun of it for a lot, you know, affectionately, oh, quiet in the aisles, quiet in the aisles. Yes, thank God you need someone roaming the room, not 80% of the time, 100% of the time. A good club, 100% of the time. Now you might go, well, Todd, isn't if, if someone was watching the room 80% of the time, wouldn't you just say that's pretty good? How about if you had a wait staff and 80% of the time they were waiting on tables? 80%, 20%, they were out maybe smoking a cigarette. Is that acceptable? It's 80, no. Same thing with details of running a good club. 100% of the time, someone has to be roaming the room, not just stopping hecklers, because hecklers, my perception is we call everything heckling, but heckling, especially mean-spirited heckling, doesn't happen almost never. No, no. Mean-spirited heckling, but a yelling out for the bit, that happens sometimes. Mostly it's loud talking at the tables. Man, when Bud roamed this room, the hallway, there was no noise coming in from the hallway, and... That was great. It made comedy here, just these crowds. You know, you train them well. By the way, whenever you see a crowd that doesn't pay attention, you know one thing. That's the way they were trained. That's not a, that's not a dissertation in the audience. They're not supposed to know anything about comedy. So when you see a disobeying audience overwhelmingly, not one person in the audience, it's not yanked out right away. You go, oh, they've been trained that they can talk during a show. Not when Bud was here. So as soon as he left, And now, like by the way, I will compliment you. <clears throat> well, it did. It got bad here for a while. There was nobody on staff. I'm being very honest with you. There was nobody on staff that knew about comedy, that knew how important that was. That And uh, for a while, it got bad. Through that time when that got bad, still loved coming here because through it all, like I said. But when you came in, and I'm, I just mean this, like, I wish we had a safe word. I swear to God, it's so lame. I swear to God. Ugh. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, from my heart, I feel like with you and Rita, and uh, there, there is maybe because they're letting you have more control to bring that sort of thing back uh, because that lab. That lab. Is is 
is most rooms are little because they're afterthoughts. So when you have a room that's hold 50 people, it's not plush. That room is plush. When you walk in that room and it's set right, it's plush. It's like a 50 person room, but it's plush, a real stage, real lighting, real. It's just, you sit in there and it just feels right. You know? Well, you've personally redecorated that room. How many times? <laughs> well, through that, we shot that thing called I am comic where I came in, but mm -hmm. now it's, that was what I was doing on I Am Comic was even with no budget, can you make a room look hip? Can you make it look cool? And that's what we did. But now that room is, well, that is was, cool. It is I, plush. I tell it, this story all the time, Todd, is I didn't know you. I think it was my second month booking that lab. I had just gotten here. The room was kind of falling apart and I was doing my best to revitalize remember, it. Remember, that seems like ages ago. It was five years ago. Yeah. And you called up one day because I booked Eddie Pepitone to do a show and you were going to open up for him. And they said, put the booker on the line. You got on the phone. You're like, I'm coming over. We're going to make that room amazing. And you had no, no, no stake in it other than you wanted to have a great show. Well, we didn't have a big budget, but I knew that we could come in and darken it. I remember you went to a thrift shop. You bought some old lamps and put like red and blue bulbs or red bulbs. And we put them around the room. And by the way, a big thing when you don't have money is just darken the place. Make it shabby chic. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason that term exists. You just lower the lights and you throw some black tablecloths on the tables. You put candles on. You get a, a guy playing the guitar jazz in the corner, maybe guitar and drums, maybe keyboard and drums. You walk into a room that's shabby, but it's dark and there's candles lit and there's a two-piece in wearing fitted suits in the corner playing some music and there's candles and black tablecloths. Even in the most shabby room, you walk in, you're like, wow, this is special. Yeah, lighting and music are, I think, the lowest hanging fruit in to create that experience. And it's free, by the way. Most of the time it's free. Yeah. So Most that was just a free. huge moment for me as a producer and a booker, um, that experience and yeah. you showing up and yeah, you inspired me to go get stuff. And, and, and you know, I, I always wonder why I always talk about this. Why am I obsessed with this? You know, I'm not joking with you. Um, my safe word that I use so I can use it with the rest of the show, I would just say to George Carr and that came up one day on my, one night on my podcast. I'm like, George Carlin said to Joe Pesci, Daniel Kino, my friend goes, we should say to George Carlin. So to George Carlin, this is true. Um, Every time I drive, and I know we're going to talk about booking, and of course, with my passion towards shows, mm -hmm. it's, it, it merges that way. I say, I'm not going to talk about it at all. I'm not, and then sure enough, besides the half an hour before the show started here, I was yelling about clubs. But, you know, I think my obsession with doing comedy good, and there's gray areas, when I don't get mad because let's say a club, 10 is doing it exactly like I like it, for, for just to have a, to, you know what I mean. And I know this is true. 10 is exactly the way I like it. If somebody does it a seven out of 10, is that, do I go off into a fit? No, seven out of 10. I'll be like, nah, that, that's great. When, is it, how about a five? I don't think even at a five, I think when it's non-existent and it's like, you know, when you don't own, when you don't do comedy, if you love it, if you love it, you might think who's who books rooms that don't love comedy all, all over the place. They love money. They, they tapped into it. I'm not saying they hate comedy. They don't realize they hate comedy or don't hates a strong word. Don't like it. Don't really care about how to present it. It's best because you're either doing great comedy. If you can't do it, you would think you'd want to present it in the best way it could be presented. The best way. Go, I can't do comedy, but man, I'm going to make comedians love me because I'm going to present it in the best way it could be presented. And then I go to certain clubs Sometimes I think, should I say anything or should I not say anything? And I'm going to, because why not? They don't give a shit, but I'm so worried. There's a club in Chicago and it's called, um, it's been there forever. And it's uh, Zanies. 
It's an institution. I'm going to go real positive here, and then you're going to think, wow, this sounds like a compliment. It is an institution. The pictures on those walls are unbelievable. Everybody's performed at this place. They're packed in there exactly the way they should be. There's this frenetic energy. But they run it like a shithole. Like instead of, you know, I could take that club if they'd let me, even if they heard this podcast and they go, well, we'll take them up on it. I'd go out there and run and put black tablecloths on all the tables, make the wait staff dress nice. Don't, don't take one of those pictures off the wall. They're jammed every inch. There's pictures everywhere. You look every single wall, the bathroom door, there's pictures on the walls, but there's a bar that's making noise that they need to put a wall up. They could put black tablecloths on the tables. They could have candles on all the tables. They could, they could have uh, on the stage, like we said, maybe one guy playing jazz guitars, people come in and they could present it like, man, you're in an institution. You know why? Because they are in an institution. You know what I mean by institution? Yes, very much. You're in an institution. This Zanies has been around forever. You are walking into something special, but yet with the with the with the disarray, they they serve nachos with shit shit cheese all over and and pizzas, you know, that you take out of the freezer and you throw into an oven. Why? Why are you taking a hot shit all over comedy? Why do you? Want, why is that how you want to present it? And there's no argument. If that person heard this, they might go, "All right, well, Todd, you have your opinion. I have my no, 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 no," and. It's frustrating when I watch it like that. When I realize the bad, I get it. You can only work with so much in that room, but like even things like the bathroom doors open up into the showroom. So put red bulbs in the bathroom. So when the door opens up into the showroom, it's, you don't see it. And when, when, when I think of a club like that and I, I just think you should open it up. It should be like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Zany. Zany's has been here since 19, whatever year it is. And then put who they're seeing up on the, who they've, who they've seen over the years, who, who's been to this place, you know, through a montage, just like a, like a little short, like a two and a half, three minute short that's, that tells people if they don't know, this is an institution. And then at the end it goes, because of this, we ask that we continue our legacy of having an amazing amount of respect for comedy. Please treat this as it was a play. We ask you to turn, treat them like set them over, like set it up like it could be classy. And everything I just said could be done probably for seriously, even maybe a wall here in front of the bar in the back and all that. I could probably do it for $1,500 if it wasn't for the wall in front of that, just lighting and some changes. So that's why I get mad when I see it. I'm going to have a podcast hangover tomorrow, but I, but it always bothers me that club. There's another one in, uh, in the same thing in, um, uh, Simi Valley or whatever it is. It's called, uh, what's the other club called? Same thing. It's an institution. Rooster Tea Feathers. Rooster Tea oh, Feathers. Yeah. It, yeah. That club, it is an institution. It's been there forever. Gary Shaling, Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Roseanne Barr, everybody's performed there, but they run it like it's a shithole. Because they're making money, probably, and that's it. You know what? They don't make as much as they could make if they did it right. I that's agree. the amazing thing. That's well, the amazing thing. If someone said, once my brother said, when the clubs do it wrong, if they just make more money, I go, the sad part is, Spencer, no. They well, make they don't more know. money. They, they don't know. They Maybe at the end of the night, they make more. No, it's all about the experience. It's only about the experience, and that's the product. And so you not- do it right, and that's why I'm proud of you. You have the nights when you have the band playing when we come in. Like, make it an experience. But anyway, well, you know what? I digressed for 10 no, minutes. No, I knew we were going to get there anyway. But so let, let me well- just make it where if someone's listening, we're like, Todd, we've heard you talk about this before. Why do I want to talk about it? Can I tell you the truth? To George Caron, I know why. Exactly. I'm, to George Caron, I want him to fix it. In my head, believe it or not, because I, I asked myself that 
And every time when I talk about it, after I say I'm not going to talk about it, I really genuinely go, what, what, what do you want out of this, Todd? Do you, do, is it, and, you, and I could see someone going, oh, he, he enjoys just making fun of someone, shitting on them. No, because if they called me and said, Todd, I heard what you said. Of course I got offended. That's my baby, that club. And I got a little pissed off. But it's a month later. Would you really come in and do what you said you said you'd do? I'd be like, first of all, I'd probably cry. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I'd get emotional. I get, you know what I mean? Like cry, I wouldn't be like, <laughs> like if somebody died that I love, but I'd probably get a little emotional and be like, oh, my heart would melt. I'd be like, yes, yes, I'll come in and do it. So that's really the reason. And I'm not going to be too soft on them. And there is the never ending, like, God, how do you look at that and not realize what you're doing? Just the way they serve food on those, with those shit baskets with a piece of white paper in it with fucking shit in it. Like do it. You know, I go to places like the, the comedy bar. This is the last thing I promise the comedy bar in Toronto. And they have a kitchen the size of literally a bedroom. If you were looking at a house, they go, man, it could be an office. And you're thinking that could barely be an office. Maybe it could be a ridiculously small walk-in closet out of that. They do, they run a, I'm not talking about the improvs where they have, you know, uh, uh, you know, menu, like full menus mm-hmm. with, with really good food. Talking about a little club that really, they got a little thing and out of it, they do everything. It's presented when you're sitting in their little comedy club, the comedy bar in Toronto, whatever food is being served, it looks presentable. It's like pita with hummus and it's served instead of white paper, brown paper. I notice everything. Use brown paper and then put it in a basket and put the food in that. And they, it just looks like, yeah, you're not in a shithole with slop and nachos all over it. <laughs> put some cheese on these nachos. Just belch them out. There you go. Go throw them at the customers. Make it look nice. Well, and would you also argue that obviously the if you pay attention to those details, the the, the comedy is going to be at a higher level. The comedians are going to re- have more respect for the venue. They're going to bring their A game, and they're going to be playing to an, a savvier audience that that appreciates all those things. Of, well, yeah, so true. You know, that's why once I always thought like there's some clubs on the road. Now the improvs have a really good reputation on the road for being really kind to the comedians. Like if you're eating dinner, put your money away. We'll buy your dinner. Even if you bring a friend and you feel guilty, especially in the early days, you'd have a friend with you and you couldn't believe they gave you free dinner. Even when you weren't working, you had a friend and you were like, like, we'll, we'll be okay. Does that mean that sometimes people probably took advantage of the improv and probably brought three friends in and Monday, the GM saw the, you know, or the head guy at the club saw. Yeah, but that's okay. They overwhelmingly thought that's okay when that happens. And I always thought it would be funny. These clubs that charge the comedians for food, Sometimes they'll let the headliner eat for free. By the way, the opener in the middle are the ones who need some free food. Right. And um, I always wish that my fantasy is that they have an accountant because business is tough. And he comes in he, and he understands comedy. He's an entertainment accountant. And he goes, all right, first thing we got to do, because you, you, things are tight around here. You could close. You know, you know, I know, I know. That's why we called you in. First thing we got to do is um, got to start giving all the uh, newer comedians free food. What? what? I can see. Why? What? what? That's the... Uh, and you get it already, don't mm-hmm. you? Because let me tell you something. Your little $2.50 bucket of shit nachos. Nah, I, I get it. At some of those clubs, they have more than that. But you get what I'm saying. Whatever it costs to give them free food, factor into the comedians that are going to take advantage of it. I'm, I'm, I get it. I get it. You try to do something kind, and then a few comedians uh, got a $150. Bo- That's all right. The improvs had the same thing happen. But they always thought, no, no, no. We're not stopping this warmth. Because sometimes people take advantage of it. You will never, you will always get back more than you give when you say, you're in my home. I'll feed you while you're here. If you don't take advantage of the drink situation, I'll give you a beer or two, even when you're not working. 
or when you're working, the improv's let you eat whatever you want, you know? Um, so I think you get back so much, so much more. So an accountant that got it would go, oh, no, 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 you're in, you're, you're, you're fucked. You got to start giving out free food. You can't afford to charge them. You need some people loving you. And you'll see that you'll reap the benefits that as the years roll around. And this probably is true in other businesses too, you know? Well, now more than ever, I feel like in LA where there is so many venues, like, Comics want to go where they want to hang out, where they're going to be with their friends and where they're going to be yeah. taken care of. And that's That's what you have to one. deal with. The, I'm sure you deal with that with the corporate people here. Of course. You know, because you're right. When you, com- people will, comedians, if they want to hang out somewhere, they will. And then the and then that's going to be their favorite club, you know? Um, so, you know. Well, we both like to oversimplify, but to me, it's as simple. For LA, not the road clubs per se, but it has to be a cool experience. That's it. Take care of your artists and make it cool. Bottom line, everything else falls into place. Everything, you're right. You're right. Because if you take care of the comedians, they're all going to love it. They're all going to come and, you know. So, but I do, through all my complaining and picking, I will say that, like I said, the improv here in LA, the Hollywood improv is, it's always a pretty special place to come hang out. You know, I still, when I'm walking from my car, parked over at Fred Siegel, parking attendants, you know, some of them have been here for literally 25 mm-hmm. years, the, uh, a few of the guys out there. And, um, hey, how you doing? And, you know, and, and then you walk in and the doormen are always friendly. They're, you know, 20 feet away. We're already starting to do bits. Like this, there's no place. This is the happiest I am when I'm at the improv. When I'm sitting in my house and I go, I don't want to go out. I just don't feel like going out. I don't want to go out. You know what I do? I go to the improv. Because mm-hmm. that's, to me, not going out. That's just getting to come here and hang so out. So how, I mean, how is it for you to look at that, our old bar, which is right across from us, um, which as far as I've always been taught, that was the cheers of comedy. Yeah. You know, it's funny after all that, you might be surprised at the, the, the how I take a turn on that. The, things change. Yep. Things change. Comment on it. I did. I'm like, why are we, why is the bar over here now? And then either get used to it or be the guy that walks around going, it used to be great here. It used to be great here. It used to be great here. Granted, I spent some time saying I was not crazy about the new layout or the new, uh, mostly the aesthetics. And mostly it was the music they were playing as people came into the room. But uh, it was uh, the aesthetics of the, the, the new way. But then I thought, make new memories. And I did. And you know what? I even learned to love the new bar. I love the way you could sit on the other side and look at people across the bar. And I, and I, I, and now it's back to the old way. So yeah, it did change a lot, but things change and newer comedians that come in aren't even going to know the old way that it was. So as long as there's a friendly and a a love for comedy and a respect for comedy, I'm okay with the changes. The changes happen. And guess what? Some you might not like, but some you probably will like. Well, how do you deal with your contemporaries that haven't evolved artistically that are, are, and those are usually the ones that are complaining. And a lot of times the ones that are bugging me the most for spots. And oh, I know, I know. I feel for you with that because you know, let, look, this might be a humble brag, but I'm going to go ahead and give it anyway. Um, I'm oh, the best. Over, <laughs> yeah, it's not, <laughs> Ever even, it's not even borderline <laughs> a humble brag. I know this might sound like a humble brag. There, there's not that many clubs uh, that I don't get rebooked at. Most of my, most of my clubs from over this, will answer your question. Most of my clubs from over the years, I go to the DC improv, I go to Acme, I go to the comedy works in Denver. And then about every year, you know, just call me six months later after I've been there. Hey, sometimes when we're there, Hey, you want to put something down on the books? So you might think, well, how can I relate to when a club doesn't want to book you? But there are clubs that that happens. And I would imagine out of the clubs that don't rebook me, it's a few things. Number one, nothing to do with not liking my act. 
There's just so many people mm-hmm. that they they, 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 they they might even be in their office two times a year going, oh, we got to get Todd Glass back. And next thing you know, it's three years. You're like, oh, shit. And then there's some that just don't care for my comedy. But I never walk around going, fuck that, that club. What would you do if you owned a club? You'd book what you like. So do I want them all to like me? Of course. But, but when they don't book me, all they're doing is exactly what I would do if I owned a club. I would book the comedians that I liked, that I thought, you know, and that's what you have to do. So, so I, I didn't, in a way, take it personally. I didn't take it personally. I wasn't like, fuck that guy. Did, did sometimes I go wonder? I, I had a good show there. Yeah, I talked about it, but I didn't with all the things that get me going and, you know, get me like, ah, son of a bitch. Uh, I didn't. And so that's the right way to do it. They have to understand. Can your feelings be hurt if they're calling you for spots and you won't give it to them? Of course their feelings could be hurt. That's normal. But they don't have to take hurt feelings and turn it into, uh, fuck that guy, Jamie, or fuck whoever, you know, whatever club it is across the country that's not booking them. You know, and, and when my contemporaries, you mean contemporaries, what does that mean? That means like people that are from my era, mm-hmm. when they don't grow, you know, I think most of them that grow aren't having problems getting spots. You know, I don't think age is really, look, there's always exceptions, but if you grow, age isn't really a factor with stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. If anything, they like you more when you, if you get a little older and you don't have the sensibility of your, like an old person, kids like you more because, hey, there's a guy they perceive to be like their parents, but not with the attitude or the closed mindedness of their parents. So guys like, you know, whoever it is, whether it's out of the guys that have been doing as long as me, whether it's Andy Kindler or whether it's Eddie Pepitone or whoever it is, they're not having trouble, but it's a lot of the guys that just sit back and go, ah, comedy's not what it used to be. Comedy's not what it used to be. And that's when I said, sometimes I don't even get angry at that. My heart goes because like, you don't think it is because you're not, you know, you're not in touch with it anymore. So what about um, other types of venues? Like now that there's the Largos and theater shows, like what, what do you, Todd, like to perform? Where do you like to perform more than anywhere? Like, Where do I like to perform more than anywhere? I like calm. I like a calm room. I like a calm room. I like it like a movie theater. Because mm-hmm. that's what your people are paying you for. They're paying you not to sit near. And by the way, again, I'm just saying this again. You know why? I don't take for granted that everyone's heard. Will this help anybody? I, I don't fucking know. But I like talking about it, and you know, and you're letting me, so why not? Yeah, please, <laughs> um, please. Uh, you, you, you. I like to perform. Like the, the example I always give is, you people pay when you go see a movie, even if you go to the worst movie theater in the world. They need new carpeting. They need a new screen. They're still blocking you out from life sounds. You never go to a movie theater ever. And if it happened, and you went to the management, and you said the side door opened three times during the movie. And they did two questions. Hey, Jerry, was that side room? Yeah, yeah. well, we were bringing the trash cans in. We three times during a two-hour movie. You'd get your money back. Because they're saying, we pay to have no outdoor sounds. You pay to see a movie. When you see a movie, do you want to sit near a bucket? A, a bucket? Remember we joked about that? I do. Do you want to sit near a bucket? Is it a big deal? I love to ask it that way. So you're sitting, you're going to see a movie, and there's a bucket <laughs> next to you in a sink where they wash things. Is that a big deal? Yes! Yes, it is. So that's what you're paying for. You're paying for civility. That's why I say when you have a show, and I'm going to tell you this and anybody who's listening, and you let too many people stand, no. If I go to see a movie or at a restaurant and there's three people standing around me, you know what I feel like? Sit. 
I paid money. I paid for parking and I paid for, for a babysitter and I paid for not, I don't want someone standing around me. Can there be a good standing energy? I don't miss a fucking beat, Jamie. Cause someone out there going, they're thinking of a club where there are people standing. And yes, there can be a proper amount of people standing, but not within the midst of the seated people. When you go to the, um, let's say the meltdown, mm-hmm. meltdown, right? Sure. There's a back area where there's no seats. And yes, in that area, they'll let people stand, comedians. But even in that back area, it should be civil standing. Civil standing. You know, there, there's a lot of those clubs around where I go, no, people pay to have comedy is not a, a party, a frat party. So where the people are seating, I say nobody's standing. And, and the question is, if you want to argue this, if you go to a movie theater, let me ask you this and be honest with me. Be honest. I won't yell at you if it totally doesn't make my point. Do you want, I'm not going to say 100 people. Three people standing a foot from you. No. Why? It's Is that that big of a deal? Yeah, I'm playing devil's advocate, but help me out here. Why? Why? No, it was funny. The last How's movie that hurt I went you? To. You got a seat, so why don't you want people standing around you, even three? It's just distracting. And be- people standing around you, they're not even talking. They're just watching the movie. That literally happened in the last movie I saw. Okay, well, guess what? The next time you're doing a show, remember that. Yeah. Do a sweep through that room. And just because no one's complaining, it doesn't mean anything. But yes, you want civil, everybody seated. If there is an area in the back, especially when you're in LA or where comedians want to come in, there's nothing cooler than when you got the room to let some comedians stand in the back of the room. But it's not, if they're talking, no, no, you're not. This is not a conversation. You come in here with respect like it's the theater. Well, let me ask you this. I am, or let me tell you this. I feel like I am the second incarnation of you. (laughs) <laughs> and anyone that works here, I literally snapped um, last week because the fluorescent lights came on. Um, the show was over, people hanging out, the fluorescent lights came on, and I snapped like I was Todd Glass and just out of my chair and just started yelling because the, the experience was now shot. Everything was over. Well, it's someone that doesn't get it, and that's why you try to ask those questions like that. Like, hey, if you're in a movie and there's someone standing around you, you're, you're just, you're just, it's not open for debate. It really isn't. So you, you, there's an atmosphere that you have and you don't, it's not a, oh, oh by the way, if it's a shit bar, oh, they run it like that. Are you, is that, is that where you work? Is this a shit bar? No, no. Is it, how about not even shit bar? Is it a bar? No bar. You don't, but when you have a place like this, that you want to create this like jazz, like a cool jazz club in New York city, they don't flick the lights on any more than at a restaurant. If you're eating at a restaurant, it's time to close. Oh, do they do it at restaurants? Yes. Not great restaurants. Where they, even if there's one customer, they don't go, how many customers are here? We had 300. There's only six. Yeah, start mopping the floors and turning on lights. No, until that let, and that's what you want. You go, that person that's left here, and this is when it sounds a little cliche, but it's not. It's just the fucking truth. They did not pay and get a babysitter and do all that. They're just as important. And what you wanted was, yeah, when the last customer leaves. Now, if you want to turn to a customer and go, hey, by the way, we're probably getting ready about 15 minutes from now to sort of close up and you give them some time. Yeah, but you don't just flip lights on. Well, that's the dramatic. Would you do it during a massage? How would you feel if, no. if someone gave you a massage? That person that did that, by the way, the person that did that, they're not a bad person at all. They're probably a great person. Matter of fact, if it's someone on the site here, I pretty no, much know everybody. No, it's a wonderful everybody. person and it was- They're we- probably a wonderful person. <laughs> But they're only, when I say bad, I mean bad in understanding comedy. If they didn't hear what you said and genuinely go, oh, 
Oh my God, Jamie's right. No, and, no, it's, but, it's someone that you know, and we came to an understanding, and it was yeah. But because the if way you were I getting reacted, a massage and the last ten minutes were over, and someone flipped on a light, I love to ask you to get that way. <laughs> ten more, you got an hour and a half massage. The last ten minutes, they opened the door because they wanted to mop, and with the door it's so low, and then that's it, mop, <laughs> and they and then they flipped flipped on the light ten minutes from your massage. Is that a big deal? Absolutely. Really, an hour and a half? Of course it is. Well, but I've to the point where I'm either OCD or. Um, it's such a control freak where it's hard for me to sit in a showroom. And if there's someone whispering, you know, on the other side of the room, I will detect it. And I become, you should, you should, you're not OCD. When, when it's something's OCD, you can call it OCD, but like lighting is not a joke. Lighting a room is not a joke. When, the, when some big band is coming into an amphitheater and they, and they're putting up gels, does someone walk around and go, Oh, you guys with your lighting. You're so OCD. You have how many guys are doing lighting? 30? <laughs> I mean, it's a nice little bonus, but no, it's goddamn lighting. And it's, and, it's, and it's very important. And people that don't get it will be very quick to write it off. Because they're saying, oh, it makes it a little better, but it's not the end of the world. It is. It is. And that's why I said, I'll say it right on this podcast. I wish the higher up here would let you take control. And it's not an argument because let me tell you something, Jamie, if they listen to everything you said here, I have a funny way of saying this, everything you said, of course, numbers would have to be at a certain point. That's how I would do it. If I own this place, I'd go Jamie or whoever the people, Jamie, Rita, I'm going to let you do whatever you want. But in five, six months, if the numbers aren't where they need to be, I'd ask for a year if I was the person trying to be the <laughs> entertainment director with a lot of authority. And when I say do whatever you want, of course, there's still things to be answered to. I get it. You can't do whatever you want. But I mean, widen the gap of what they let you do and say at the end of a year, if our numbers aren't up, if the comedians aren't swarming around here, we're going to have to ask you to, 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 uh, to, to, to terminate on your, on your own, on your own, uh, on your own accord on your, yes, yes. That's how I would do it because here's the way to say it. You're not going to be right every time. When it comes to creative decisions, Jamie, you are not going to be right every time. You're not going to be. But you're going to be right most of the time. Mm -hmm. You're going to be right most of the time. I agree. And, I agree. That, and it's okay <laughs> for you to agree. It's okay. You know, there's so many things in life you don't do great. And there's so many things in life you're insecure about. I'm sure there's tons of shit you're insecure about. Well, what you're saying in the area of comedy is it's so disgusting if I go, I feel I know something about this because I love it and care about it and breathe it and live it. Yes. And, and, and instead of that, sometimes I get it. There's probably an argument like we want to do this and we want to do that. And, you know, the best way I can explain it is, and I think this is pretty good, and they don't understand how doing this helps this. And it's like if you go to a dentist and, you know, you can have a pain on the right side of your mouth, sure. but the tooth that needs to be pulled can be on the left side. Of course, a dentist understands that. The first time I went to the dentist, he goes, the pain's over here. I listened. Oh, transfer of pain. I understand it. But if you did, it's like not to me when people don't understand at any comedy club, what, you know, or especially here, you know, why this matters and why this matters. It's like the same thing. It's like if you didn't understand it, it's like, oh, my tooth, uh, it hurts. Over, my mouth hurts over here. Well, your tooth's over here. Go, no, it can't. <laughs> my tooth hurts over here. And you, he, no matter how many times he explains to you. Yes, I understand that. To me, that's what it's like with you. They don't see it because they're not a dentist. <laughs> They're not a dentist. They don't understand that. And just because there's not a, a, a certificate of understanding comedy that you hang on the wall 
Oh, believe me, there fucking is amongst great comedians. And I'm going to tell you this right now, because like I said, I'm sure there's enough times in your life where you're insecure and you feel like maybe it's your looks or maybe it's, you know, what you're wearing or maybe it's where you're at in your life or maybe it's where your relationship is. But in the area of stand-up comedy and you getting comedy and you being a kind person, you're respected by a shit ton of great comedians. You know, all over the gambit, whether it's Jeff Ross or whether it's Zach Galvanakis, whether it's Sarah Silverman, whether it's Louis C.K., that come in this place, especially the last six months. And uh, by the way, if Rita hears this, it's going to be so mad at me. She's like, why didn't you give me any credit? I do. I know she fights for a lot of good, good stuff, too. But they're like, did you see the new room? And it's so cool. And it's like, so... It, this if they let you go, I hope they just let you go because I guarantee you their story would be a year from now. They're like, fuck, man, this place is doing pretty good. Well, there's still a fight because, as you know, anywhere you don't have full control, that you, know, you have to answer to someone. And that affects the way the club is booked and run and everything about it. But as you've noticed, and part of the reason the last six months and really the last couple of years have, have taken this um, new vibe is because they are. I mean, we have Rita as our GM. Yeah. And having someone that runs the club. Who's it? You, Rita, Jay are pretty much on the floor all the time, right? And Paige. And Paige. Oh, that's right. Paige. So, and and they all love comedy. They really do. And you think, well, loving comedy doesn't mean you know everything about it. It, it, Yes, it does. Well, It It means you learn it because you give a shit about it. Well, Jeff Ross was here two weeks ago headlining on a Friday night. And that was because I, as the booker, didn't book him. Uh, Paige was here late one night with Jeff and was like, why don't you come here Friday night? And Paige texts me. And that's because we're working as a team. And Well, there's a vibe here. That's like, like, it's not only important to the show, but like, let me tell you something. When I'm driving down the street, here's why, you know, I give uh, the credit for this room we're in right now because I know it serves as the podcast studio, but also the green room, depending on who the acts are. When you're driving somewhere and you think of a club that the hangout area is good, that's probably where you're going to go. If you've got friends in town and you're a bigger comedian and you go, where am I going to go? It's like, yeah, you want the show to be great, but then you think, oh, we're going to come up here now that they're getting the patio done. You know, that's why I said they should put an outdoor. I really do believe this. I'm going to say it on your podcast, so maybe it gets done. They should get, you know, the trees that are, you put them in pots, but they're on wheels. Mm-hmm. They should get seven or eight or 10 of them and then make an outdoor green room. So there might be someone that wants to eat dinner, but still be near the energy of other people. Maybe they don't want to be up here eating dinner, mm-hmm. but outside in the patio when there's life and there's noise, but there's a little... Pseudo green room just made by rolling trees into any corner they want to create it. Put a table in there, light some candles, and they could serve dinner out there. So think about that. Like you go, oh, we can go upstairs to this, the room we're in now and hang out. Or, you know what? I'll do my show. And then afterwards, we'll have dinner on the patio. And those things will make this place, you know, uh, uh, you know, just take it to another level. Absolutely. The hang. It's all about the hang. It's all about the hang. It really is. That's, you know, I said it in 30 minutes. You said it in three, in, in a sense, <laughs> but you're true. It, it, and I could see someone not knowing that. I really could see someone. I won't mention names that not, you get that. It's all about the hang. How do you come to that conclusion? Cause you watch and you look and you learn and it comes down to, it's all about the hang. Of course the club has to be good and the sound system has to be good, but they all have that. Mm-hmm. Any club in LA pretty much out of all the major clubs have the right lighting, the right sound system. Oh, well, not always lighting, but. Well, it's giving credit where credit is due, oh, and um, this has been become such a corporate club. But having fought battles and been through it all, like uh, I by just, the way, corporate can be okay. Yeah, if they get comedy, mm-hmm. corporate can be all right. Matter of fact, I'm not insinuating that coming into a club like this and fixing the dinners and making them better—that is important. Absolutely, but they have to understand that the comedy 
is why they're coming. And that's what I told the owner of the chain in Philadelphia. I told the owner of Helium, I go, you're going to have a guy that's a night manager that the comedians love. He's cool. He's great. Now, look, that can't mean that he leaves the door open and forgets to put the alarm on. But it might mean maybe he's not good as the day manager who used to work at a Applebee's. He knows ordering. He knows liquor. He knows this. He knows hiring. He knows payroll. But he's not good with the comedians. Somehow, at a lot of clubs, that guy rules. That guy rules. And the guy at night that the comedians love, or he, they, they, the, he, the, the, the guy that knows the numbers, I said, Mark, like I said, I get it. And there was a night manager I was specifically talking about. And he, let's say 10 is being the best with numbers and the ordering and the, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All that shit you got to do that has nothing to do with comedy. 10's the best. He was probably a six or a seven. But on the scale of comedians loving him and getting comedy and knowing comedy, he was a 10, he was at 11, he was a 13, and he's still there. And you know what? It made me feel real good when Mark goes, I remember you said that. And he goes, believe me, there were a few times that the person that the night manager reaped the benefits of that. I go, yes. And, and I didn't want it to be where the, that guy should be respected. He should be respected because that he's the whole being of the club. Mm -hmm. He's the whole being of the club, the comfort of the comedians when they walk in. There's a good energy. You get a guy that's the night manager with a funky energy, even if people want to tell you, oh, you got to get to know him. I don't want to fucking get to know him. I just want to meet someone like you. The minute you meet him, like the minute people meet you, Jamie, when they walk in here, they fucking love you. It's like, oh, you don't got to get to know Jamie. You meet him and you love him because he cares about comedy and he's excited about comedy. That's who you need. And, you know, so any club, not only this club, by the way, you need to have, you will never have a good club and this goes back to maybe Bud Friedman, if somebody on site doesn't get comedy, and here's the part, and have some power, not fighting the guy who worked at Applebee's. They could work together. They should both respect each other. But the problem is the respect usually doesn't come from the Applebee's manager to the, to the other guy. Mm -hmm. Just a mutual respect of going, listen, we, if we work together, this can be unbelievable. But I always say the guy that's on site that has that has a love and a respect for comedy has to have some power. And that guy was Bud Friedman. Mm -hmm. Bud Friedman didn't have to go. I, they're talking. I know they're not heckling, but can I can I go tell them to be quiet? No, because he has power. So when he felt something needed to be done, he got it done. When there was noise out in the hallway, he shut people up. That's when you have a good club. You will never have a good club if there's someone that is, you know, you have to have someone on site always that respects comedy. Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, I want to make money as much as anyone. I want to make a lot of money. They're, yeah, that's a good and point. And I want to be creative and artistic and create shows that um, I'm, I love and that people will love. And I want to make money. And right. I think that those things I think you're right. Exist. And, 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 you know, I think Helium, that chain, uh, definitely proves that because, uh, they, uh, they also want to make money. And by the way, I should also go out of my way to say this before I compliment a chain that we're not sitting in right now. Uh, the, the, you know, the original improvs, when they open them up, you know, but, uh, but, you know, the improvs are the largest chain on the planet. Mm -hmm. And not only are they the largest chain on the planet, but they, you know, back in the day when they first started to open up, improvs everywhere else i don't know what year it was it might have been before i even got here it might have been 88 when they started opening up irvine and then mm -hmm. you know tempe and then san francisco and then dallas and um 
they were they put they took comedy to another level. So the improv has done a lot. In other words, it, it was you know even though we look back at what the improv used to serve at the road clubs for food and we're like oh it's so much better now. It was better than it was ever before that you went to a place to see comedy. It didn't have to be a shithole. All those improv roads, and some of them are still there. A lot of them are still there, and that they had a respect for comedy, and that they treated the comedians well, and you could go see comedy like in, in a nice atmosphere. And so the improvs, you know, I I, I give them high praise. So, Sometimes. So uh, t- t- tell me about your your first open mic. <laughs> Just My kidding. first open mic? I'm just kidding. I'm just oh. kidding. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, this is, I, I do want to ask you, I was talking to Mike Carano earlier, and he mentioned uh, shows that you would do in San Diego. Um, San Diego Improv, where Dave Becky used to be the manager. Right. And Mike, Be- and Mike Carano, they were both. And man, talk about two guys that get comedy and love. Oh, you could just tell it was such a, wow, what an atmosphere to go down and work at that club. And I, I used to take the whole audience. There was a Denny's. I think this yes. is what Mike's talking about. Mike says he has video of this, and he does. I would take the whole audience, and, and when I say the whole audience, that room probably held about 275. I would take about 50 of them, and they would go next door with me to Denny's. We'd all walk in, and then we'd go, it's our birthdays. <laughs> we get a free dinner. Is that true? They still, which that back then, if it was your birthday, they gave you a free dinner. And then some of the people, I wanted everyone to come in. I wanted to just pack Denny's. So sometimes I'd get like 30 of the audience to come in. Some would just stand outside. They didn't want to come in. You know, they didn't want to make the commitment. So I'd shut all the blinds. I go, no, you don't want to come in? I'd yell out the door. You don't want to come in? I'm shutting the blinds, you know? (laughs) Then more would come in. And Mike would have it on video, you know, where I would do that. I did that every time I was there, maybe three times during the week. It was my favorite thing to do. Well, that's and by the way, I did it when the show was over. I, I'd be the middle. Was in the middle yeah. I was the middle. And then when the, I would say, hey, by the way, you're headliner tonight, blah, blah, blah. Very funny. After the show, you know, we'll, we're going we're gonna to all go over to Danny. And then Mike was also mentioning that you had a stand-up Jeep. Well, I, I, had, a, <laughs> I had a Jeep that had a little stage on it. And it was a brick wall that would flop sure, up sure. and lighting that would come out. And I just did these impromptu shows all around uh, wherever. I could go to the beach and do comedy. Or You said that so casually. Th- That's like an epic undertaking. Like, how many times did you do it? And what well, was the response? I did it a lot. And then I got hired to go. I, I did it a lot on the Jeep. And one of your door guys here, uh, uh, John, uh, built it for me. He came all the way down to my house in Orange County. We bought some fake brick. And it had to fold into the back of a Jeep. So it had to, the, the back wall had to fold into three pieces. And then after a show... I, I, I knew I was going to go. I needed to get a new car anyway, and I bought a, a Nissan Pathfinder pickup truck or a Nissan two-door pickup truck. And, uh, you know, and then I, somebody after the show came up to me, and they were a carpenter but also an engineer, which means they could rig, like, hinges and stuff. And so they took the back of my flatbed and put a – the wall served as the cover to the bed. So all the wall did with some hinges, it would go straight up and lock. And then lighting would extend out. The speakers were in the bed of the truck and they were on hinges to just pull one speaker, flop it out to the right. The other speaker, flop it out to the left. The, the lighting. It's like a transformer. Yeah, it was, it was, this, it was, it was crazy. And then I had all the wires that would go to the PA neatly in like a, you know, one of those black hoses like you have over there, mm-hmm. you know, that hides wires. And that would go to the PA, which would control the lighting and would control the... And I would just go to the beach. I, a lot of where I started getting hired was for a lot of colleges because they could do shows out in the common area, but have lighting and a PA. And you know, it was a one, you know, just back my Jeep into this area. And then like 300 college students would be sitting all over the lawn, but it would be lit and there'd be a good sound system. I had a cordless mic and I got, I hated doing it. I just got tired of it. 
And uh, I took it up to Moholland. Mohol, am I saying it right? Moholland. Moholland. And I, it was all wood. It was all wood. I took the PA out of it because I knew that was worth something, which I still have. And I pushed it over the side of the mountain because I couldn't stop doing it. And I, and I didn't like it anymore. It was a pain in the ass. So no more Jeep. Well, what, what, I'm going to have podcast hangover. Yeah, let's talk about this. I never talk. Do you think I should have podcast hangover? I mentioned two clubs. Do you think I should, or do you think I'm, or do you think I should just get over it? What do you mean podcasting? Podcast hangovers where I wake up tomorrow and I go, oh, why did I have to say that about Chicago, the Zanies, and then Rooster Teeth? Oh, powers? got it, got it. You, um, could, you could Google it out. You could go, ooga, ooga, every time I say it. I note the producer. We're going to ayuga out Zanies. Oh, now he's got to do it then. Stop saying it. the improv. No, the improv, I, I'm oh. just kidding. I, oh. I have no, jokes, too. It would too. just be the multi- What? I sometimes have jokes as well. Oh. <laughs> said so many nice things about you what else i mean what if you always want to talk about on a podcast not like you don't have your own that you do every week no i got that's all i want to talk about well anything i mean as far as booking uh booking yeah so you know you too well or getting so booked i mean just the, the there's nothing of- to do you just got to be a, you just got to do comedy that's why like sometimes someone will ask me advice on comedy i love to talk about comedy but like when the specifics of how do you get booked well, no, no, there's an answer well, there to that. Is. It's just not a, it doesn't have to be, you do this, you do, it's, you just work on being a great comedian. Work on being a great comedian and you're going to end up getting work. You're going to end up getting work is because I think overwhelmingly comedians are pretty supportive. Now, look, there's always exceptions, but I think if you're hearing this and you're going, I don't think they're supportive, it's probably because you're not. Not an isolated situation. An isolated situation, you can be a very positive person, very positive, and then walk into a situation where there's some negativity. That's not a representation of you. Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, if you think comedy is a backstabbing business, now, of course, no one thinks, oh, my God, I am backstabbing. Backstabbing is is an an aggressive term. What it means is you might not be backstabbing that you you, you literally wait outside the improv to like, you know, flatten someone's tires or, or spread a bad rumor about them. because someone stab their so, back. Yeah, someone's sitting, or what? Stab or their stab back. their back, literally. So someone might be listening to this going, I think comedy is not supportive, but I would never, you know, spread a rumor about someone or do any backstabbing. Okay, maybe not in the traditional ways, but are you giving love? Are you, when you see another comedian, are you, are you, you flooding them? Oh, that was so funny and supportive. There's certain, because, because I think overwhelmingly stand-up comedy is very supportive and there's so many comedians that love it. So I think if you give that love and you work on your craft and you're going to, bookings are going to fall into mm-hmm. place. You're going to end up getting booked. I don't know anyone that works hard, supportive, loves comedy. Well, maybe at a newer point in your career, you hit some points where, yes, at the end of the year, could you feel that way? Yes. But if you're doing comedy, let's understand one thing. You got to widen the scope of when I'm talking. Otherwise, someone could be hearing this and going, I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about. And they'd be right to think it. I do love comedy and I am supportive and they'd be telling the truth. But yet they're going, I can't get booked. Look, Let's widen the scope here of when I, when I say this. I get it at the end of the year. It could be very frustrating. I do understand that. But most comedians start pretty young. But even if you start at 25, because that's a, a good, I started at 16. So most start pretty young. And do it till they're dead. Do it till they're dead. Mm-hmm. Literally. You think of all the guys, um, you know, whether it's whoever it is, you know, George Carlin or, or whether it's, uh, Rodney Dangerfield will go further back to, you know, George Burns or whoever you want to go back to. They do it till they're dead. And 
So really 25 to 80 or 90, that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Good will prevail even if you have a year or two that's frustrating and you feel like you can't just keep doing it, keep being positive. What about those, uh, the gatekeepers you encountered as far as, you know, getting your first late night set, doing your first special, those benchmarks in your career? You know, a friend of mine uh, was, uh, my manager's uh, old assistant was asking me some questions about comedy. And, you know, I really hope I give good advice because you don't, uh, you know, you don't want to give shitty advice. And I said, you know, there's going to be periods in your career where you do have to worry about that stuff. How do I get a special? How do I do all that? But right now, you don't got to worry about that. Uh, it'll, it'll take its course. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let's put it this way. If, when you have to make those decisions of how do I get a special? How do I do this? By that time, if you do things right, you're going to have a manager. Mm-hmm. If you, all you do is go out there and do comedy, and every night you get on stage, not have great excuses why you can't get on stage, but get on stage mm-hmm. three, four, five years later, six, seven, you know, whatever, when it's time where you, someone watches you and says, wow, this guy's funny, this girl's funny, you're going to get management. And then a lot of the things you don't have to worry about because if you get management, they're going to they're gonna guide you, you know. Your first manager might not be the biggest manager in the world, but they'll know more than you know and they'll be able to guide you in the right decision. I think a lot of that stuff sort of happens, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, you know, if you want to be a writer, you know, you should be. Like I told, I'm not a. I don't want to be a writer. It's just not my forte. I like to stand up, but I don't want to write on a show. But I had a friend of mine. He does want to be a writer, and um, I noticed he doesn't tweet that much. And I hypothetically, I said, "What would you do?" I know it's a weird hypothetical. I wish I could think of a better one, but this is the one I used on him. Uh, I said, "What would you do if someone like a famous comedian?" Yeah, the the word is you 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 know you're a newer comedian, but their management the saw you know came to you and said, listen, uh, who who should I pick? Pick a comedian, Drew Carey, whatever you know. Goes, uh, he wants to pay you. Where do you hear this? Is a lot of money. This is what I told my friend. He, that's a hypothetical. He mm-hmm. knew I wasn't being being serious. I said ten thousand a month. He wants you to write to write him tweets. Well, what's going on in the news? Maybe just what's you know maybe just a random tweet or whatever. And they don't all have to be great tweets. Eh, you know, tell you the truth. If, if twice a month they're like, he's going to be happy. And the others, you know, just wants you to handle, he'll decide what he tweets. You're just going to send it to him. 10,000 a month. Could you do that? He goes, yeah. I go, we'll do it for yourself then. He's like, you mm. fucker. He goes, you fucker. I go, of course, because not you, 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 if you tweet, if you want to be a writer and you, and you, and you tweet, and I've seen this take effect. Um, where it doesn't mean 8 million people have to retweet it. Or let's say even when it's fun when 1,000 retweeted or 400 or 50, 50 people retweet a tweet, it could be 20, but one of them is someone that has a new show. And they're like, you know who tweets funny shit? Do you know? They, it might happen at different levels. Hey, do you know who blah, blah, blah is? You go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're down doing spots at the improv. Yeah, I just... I saw one of their tweets, so I started following them. And they go, like, every month, that guy really, that girl really pumps out some funny tweets. That's, I know how that's how certain people get hired sometimes. Mm-hmm. They're like, so that type of stuff. Just do shit, you know. It's not a good time in this comedy world to, uh, to make excuses because there's so many avenues that right. you can go down. So if you like making excuses, it's a real shit time. How cool has it been to watch that all evolve in the last 15 years? Love it. And you've embraced it. it all. I've what? You've embraced it all. 
Yeah, because if you don't embrace it, you get left in the wind. I think my love for comedy keeps me embracing it. I don't sit around and analytically look at it and go, I better be supportive of new younger comedians because, no, no, I don't. But that doesn't mean I can't see that I reap the benefits of being supportive of new younger comedians. And, you know, even if you're right, even if you're right, and you're not, but I'll give it even if just to get past it, because if people don't agree with what I'm saying, they won't go down this next path with me. So even if you're right, even if comedy's not what it used to be, it's not what it used to be. It was better. Guess what you're not going to get to do? Be a part of the new thing. So just, you know, you, you can't. No one wants to be around an old fucking comic that all they do. Is, and by the way, that's true in life, too. I talk sure. about that when people go, oh, the kids today, the kids today. Nobody wants to be around an old person that tells them that things used to be better. So even if you're right, be prepared to be old and lonely. And, you know, uh, or in comedy or in, in life or whatever it is. That's what I always say. Like, if you're if you're 80 and you, you tell you know, all you do is talk about how dumb kids are and they're stupid, <laughs> they are. Guess what you get to do? Hang out with 80 year olds. Oh, that sounds like a fucking blast. Mm. And that's what you get to do as a comedian. If you're a 61-year-old comedian or a 57-year-old comedian or whatever age you are, and all you do is talk about how bad comedians are, even if you're dead fucking right, guess what you don't get to do? You don't get to be a part of the new thing. So, yeah, that, that's your choice you make. Mm -hmm. But by being supportive and by liking new comedians, that's why sometimes a friend of mine, even one of my contemporaries, will walk into the improv and go, I don't know any of these new young guys. Well, fucking learn. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You're done? You're writing it off? You don't, Oh, so you just wanted to learn that group you started with. Now you're done wanting... Because guess what? After a while, you, you just... If you give a shit, next thing you know... You know, like when Rory Scovel moved into town. Like, I remember watching him going, fuck. Or whether it's, you know, whether it's Rory Scovel or whether it was Harris Whittles when he first came out here. Or, you know, um, uh, Ron Funches. I remember the first time I saw Ron Funches. Or Whittemer Thomas when I saw him. Or Alan Strickland-Williams. I'm like, oh, that guy's funny. And the list goes on and on and on yeah. and on. And, um, you know, you see, uh, you know, newer comedians and you uh, you get excited. You know, you're, you... you uh, I'm glad you're saying this because there, that is one place where I get or at least I feel I'm getting uh, judged the most by by the comedy world at large is younger comics and I'm trying them out and having taste or hoping to have taste and trying to put what I like, but especially at this club, which has this storied history, like what it means to be a regular now has changed. You know, being a regular here now, I mean, I envy the days where Bud saw you and said, here, come do three or four sets a week. That just doesn't exist. It doesn't here. exist. Things change. Yeah. Things change. Well, you're way. saying you get, you get judgment from the newer comedians saying what? Cause or just, you know, older comics that uh, will, you know, look down the lineups and be like, don't know, don't know, don't know. And yeah. just, Hey, look, you know, I, I, I get it. It's uh, you know, I would not want your job. I can tell you that right now. And I get it. If there's a comedian that's not getting booked here and how can he not get a little frustrated? I understand that. But the bottom line is I, if they, are they getting booked nowhere? Because to me, if you're getting booked everywhere, but there's one place that won't hire you, you're going to be frustrated. Right. But you're not going to be steaming mad if you're not getting booked anywhere. Well, maybe that's maybe well, that's you, should, good maybe point you should look inward. Comics that um, hit me up, and I don't think they're going up anywhere else ever. Like this yeah. is a professional comedy club in LA where you know, the comics that are getting up should be. This is probably one of two or three sets they're doing that night. Yeah, or nine or ten they're doing. Well, that week. you know, look, you're, it sounds such a cliche, shitty vanilla thing to say but i you know you know, you can't please everybody but that's not an answer because you should try and you can always grow and maybe maybe you you like comedians grow maybe you can 
Maybe there is an area where you need to, you, I'll tell you one thing you do need to do. And I've slipped and I think a younger comedian will appreciate this. Make sure you see a comic that you didn't think had it a year later, mm -hmm. because the next thing you know, it's three years later and you, you know, you, me, we're all guilty of this. Uh, there was a comedian that wanted to go on the road with me and I love him hanging out with him, but he's just not ready to, to, to go on the road and, and, you know, and, and do 25 minutes of stand up yeah. comedy ahead of me. And uh, it's a shame because I would really like to bring him on the road because offstage we have fun. And then, you know, one year passed, two years passes, and I see him and I'm like, what the fuck? He's ready to go on the road and I'm ready to have him because I get to reap the benefits of it. So you should try to. And I think it really behooves you, even if it means you leave here one night and go out and watch some people, maybe without them knowing, don't make them nervous. Just mm -hmm. poke your head in around. And when a year passes, watch someone because people in a year, if you're going up, think about it. You see a comedian you don't think's ready. Um, hey, and even though when you don't think he's ready, he thinks he is. That's frustrating. Mm -hmm. OK, but at least you know, go see him again or her again. And, um, in a year and you be, cause they're going up. Think about that. If they're going up hundreds of times in a year, Absolutely. night after night, 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 after night. And that's January. And then February night after night, after night, March night, February, March, April, May, June, July night after night, after night, after night, August 50, a hundred times in a, a year later, if they're really? working, you, you should take another look at them and make sure you haven't just have what you're old. Because it's easy to go, oh, no, I do. Nah, we, we can all get better at that. No, Even me as a non-booker. I had um, Zoe Friedman on an uh, early episode, but we talked a lot about Who? that. Zoe Friedman? Zoe. And, but just this, this art form where you can see such huge growth in such a short amount of time. And that's one of the, the joys of this job is, is seeing that person that you haven't seen in a year or two years and like how far they've come. I know. Like, I remember the first time I saw Chelsea Peretti. That's a great example of uh, someone I knew she was funny. And then I saw her two years later. I was like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, wow. So well, what now? What, 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 what do you see the next phase of your career? Like, what, what is... That's a good question, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't like going on auditions, although I went on one today, so I'm very proud of myself. Um it was a voiceover, so I didn't mind doing it. So about five years ago, you know, I, I told my manager, I said, let me just, I'll create my own things. And I have, I, you know, shot a few pilots over the years and just did a pilot called Camping with Todd. And with, uh, we're literally, I took uh, three comedians. It was me, John Dorn, Eddie Pepitone, and Zach Galvanakis, and we went camping. Uh, we did all the groundwork. I didn't. I don't think the best part about camping is the reason I say this in an aggressive tone is because I think a lot of I thought right away everyone would be everybody would be like, oh great, you're going to show them setting up the tent. In very reality, they go right to that. Zach can't set up the tent. John Dor can. Whoa, what's Roy Scovel doing? Fuck that. <laughs> I don't think that's what's special about camping. And that's and I created the world I wanted to me to me. And by the way, are there exceptions? Yes. There's people that enjoy the actual chopping of the wood. They exist. There are people that enjoy the setting up of the tent. They exist. I know they do. But overwhelmingly, it's being around a campfire, as primal as it is, with all the technology we have in this world, you are around a crackling fire. There is no TV where we were at. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. There was no DVD. There was no Netflix. Netflix. There was a raging fire. 
To me, that is so special. And then sleeping in tents that you're willing to do the setting up and the tenting and the chopping of the wood and all that. But it's not what you crave. And I went, I just want to give people what they crave. So it wasn't glamping because they were the same tents you would use to camp. We set them up. And I'm on camera doing it. I got like four or five people helping me. I'm not even doing it myself. I don't lie. And I'm telling what I just told you. I go, this is a special thing. When people come in, I want to get to what's special. So all the tents were set up. All the wood was chopped. The minute they got there, I showed them what I did. I go, look in the tent. We got beds. We got, you know, air mattresses. Um, And we just started making dinner. And it was great. And it's not just a gimmick. It's not like, oh, they're camping. (laughs) Who gives a shit about a gimmick? A gimmick's done in 30 minutes. But we really were in the middle of the woods, you know, and it was dark and there's a fire. It just forces you to talk about different things. And then we were still doing the bits. When Zach got there, I was like, how long did it take you to get her? He goes, where the fuck are we? Where was it? It was way, I forget the name of the place, but it was out, like it was two and a half hours away in Angeles Forest, Mm -hmm. but out there. And, um... We drove everybody, but he just wanted to drive himself. So he drove himself and uh, it was, we didn't want it to be like 20 minutes away. We wanted right. it to feel. So I just shot that pilot and uh, getting ready awesome. to do another. So I th- getting ready to do another hour special, which um, I'm excited about. I, I feel like I, I've become a better comic in the last three years. And that's the last time I did a special. So just created my own vehicles and, you know, I just, uh, you know, I just keep doing it. I love it, and I'm just keep doing it. Well, we're all the richer for it. Well, thank you. You're thank you, Todd. Sweet. This has been so much fun. I hope I hope you enjoyed. I hope you got to talk about some things that you don't normally talk about. By the way, even just to tell you this, when I say I already talk about those things, that's my own paranoia. Of I always love talking about it, even again and again, because it. Again, I hope that people hear it. You know, nothing makes me happier when I do like what I call a bar show. I did a bar show last night out in Manhattan Beach. And by the way, you know, let me spend 60 seconds on this because whenever anybody goes, hey, I listen to your podcast where I do a show and then I go there, I think, well, they listen to my podcast. It's going to be set up right. And I get there and it's not. I go, what the fuck? No, last night I go to this bar show. Wish I remembered the name of it. But um, I get there and there's everyone seated in the bar. The restaurant's already closed. And then all of a sudden, The TVs go off, click, click, click. All of a sudden, the lights come down. The stage lights come up. What are the stage lights? Two clamp-on lights that you can buy at Home Depot for literally $5. Mm -hmm. One's on one side, one's on the other. Boom, they come on, and they play like 30 seconds of a song that probably that audience knows. Oh, when you hear that song, it means go to the bathroom because we're starting the show. Maybe they played like a minute and a half of it. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine that means, oh, that's that song. That means we're starting the show. And I was like, great, that's what you do. Even at that level, you can present yes. comedy in a great way. So um, I always get excited when I, and that's why I talk about it a lot, because I hope someone listens and says, oh, yeah, why am I doing it? You go to a bar show. There's no lighting on the stage. I don't give a shit. Just if, it, you know, if it's like, oh, we're, we've only been doing it here two weeks. You know, so what? Set it up right. Push the chairs near the yep. stage. Do it right. Even if you don't have a stage, you can do clamp on lights and all that shit. So I enjoy talking about it because I hope it changes. And the positive is, I will say this, there's a lot of those bar shows that are really set up right. Like I, I, when I go around, I think, God, if I had anything to do with someone knowing that, uh, um, uh, great. Or all these shows that are like in the, these shows, like, you know, brouhaha or the living room show. I mean, they're set up, they're in someone's houses and they're like, great. Mm-hmm. You get there. You're like, they make a green room out of a bedroom and they set up lighting and they just, 
you know, so so comedy's at a, a really cool place. You know, when I was at uh, Brouhaha, am I saying it right? Yeah. And, you know, you would think drinking and comedy doesn't work. It does, because they're there more for the comedy. And I was, and you talk about being part of the new thing. And I was performing. And the, just the frenetic energy of all these, you know, I, look, I've said it a million times. I, I'm, I'm at my happiest when I'm around comedians. I crave being around comedians. When I'm, at, when I'm around comedians, I feel like a kid that's 30 feet from Disneyland. It's just this, you don't, you don't know what to do with it. It's just, and then I'm there and I'm performing. Same thing. They got two clamp on lights. They got Christmas lights all mm -hmm. over the place. You know, uh, stringing oh, that's from. So they, yeah, they, they, they do it right. And then I look up and I see five people sitting on the roof watching the show and i was like wow when i went i was on the roof are you serious that's my humble brag for the episode that's that's a great place to be i got like well if you saw this in a movie wide shot christmas lights hanging over the audience that are dimmed down two lights on the stage in someone's backyard they got they, i don't know how they get these chairs but they had like 40 50 chairs in the backyard people are standing and sitting everywhere there's a place where some standing is is cool but still not too much. And then I see five kids sitting up there on the roof. I got the chills. My literally the the, the hair on my on my arm stood up because I was like, "Wow, that's like I'm part of something special." You don't get to be part of well, that. That's what I mean. That's part of what I've been trying to do here. And those, both Brad who produces that show and Matt and Frank who do Comedy Living Room are people that I handpicked and said, "What do you want to do here?" And so that's the stable. Of yeah, I really producers. revere. Is that the word? And respect. Mm -hmm. All those guys, the meltdown, all those people that, you know, love comedy. They try to have a food truck, you know, outside. And it just makes it like this event. And you take it, you know, to another level. And that's why I'm saying anybody that's listening to this that works here, like, you know, you, you know, we shouldn't make it like there's some contention. It's, it's whenever you have a creative situation, there's always, I want to do this and you do that. But I know, you know, when I walked into that room the first time and I saw you had, you know, the band playing while the people were being seated. I went, wow, I know one thing for sure. This is not the real world. Like there was a band, like four-piece band with trumpets and sax and drums and keyboards just as people are being sat. It's like, wow, this is so special. And even if you can't have a four-piece band, that's why I say you should always have something in the main room. Have someone playing piano as they're coming in. And then all of a sudden idea. the lights go out. Even if you can't afford it, even if they go, well, we don't really have the budget to have a four-piece band every night. That's okay. Have a piano and drums. You've done that very thing. You I've did done the last time, like here. Yeah. I think there needs to be like a Michelin or a Zagat, like the Todd Glass stamp of approval. Well, I give it, I give it, I, by the way, I know I, I, it sounds crazy, but I, I always say to myself, I think I'm not crazy because uh, if somebody said to me, Todd, uh, who does do it right? Then you you never talk about anybody that does it right. I hope I can go inward and go, oh, I'll tell you the truth. Can I self-analyze myself? Jesus Christ, there's nobody. No, a, a lot of people do it right. As many as a lot do it wrong, when they do it right. I, I, you know, when I went to that living room show, I stayed there. The joke was, I go, what if I never left? Cut to 2.30 in the morning. And I'm, <laughs> who wants to leave that atmosphere where everyone gets comedy? I hope they're doing something else now. Um, and the, or, or the, like I said, the brouhaha show or the, uh, you know, all those unique shows There's some I'm leaving out. Oh, the, 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 um, up on uh, sunset, the Whitmer Thomas's show, uh, um, uh, uh power violence, power violence. Yeah. Like they've created their own thing up there mm -hmm. just by like doing different shows. Like everybody creates their own thing in the power violence, that audience. I love yelling. 
but I don't want people to be scared when I yell. Well, their bits are so loud and so, you know, big that when you yell, they don't get scared because they've been trained to see a lot of that type of comedy. So that's a, a great audience and, um, that they've cultivated up there. And I say Whitmer Thomas, and there's some other people that I'm forgetting, well, obviously. Hunter Hill and the lyric. Hunter Hill, the lyric, like, Jesus Christ, like, did, yes. I think everyone owes a debt of gratitude to you, but Hunter and obviously myself and Brad and, and Whitmer and all these people. Hunter, man, that guy, I love him. He does it. He just, just you know, one night, like, we were doing a show, and it was in the showroom, but where the green room was, was like you're sitting in a piece of art. And like, why wouldn't you want to? I had just as much fun. I went to do my show. And then it's like, where's the show? Like, all I know is I was enjoying the green room. Like, literally, he put some food out and mm -hmm. he had a candle lit. And we're sitting around these cool chairs. And, and, then, and, then, and then you go do your show. And then when you're done your show, you go back to that. Like, where is there anywhere bad here? I'm either, it's usually you do your show and then you're like, oh, the show's over. No, with that, you're like, that's why this green room we're sitting on. And, but, okay. Well... Where Go fuck it, yourself. Yep. That, Sick of your that, shit. Yeah, I had it coming. Had it coming this whole time. Uh, <laughs> I've been bad. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad human. I had it coming. I had it coming. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Thank I'm you. I'm so glad you could do this. Where where can people find you, Todd? On the internet? I'll be at And the, in real life? I'll be at uh, Power of Violence. I wanted to give them an extra plug. Um, I'm, I'm, all, I'm around. I'm on ToddGlass.com uh, or whatever. I forget my ToddGlass something, my webpage. And then my podcast which is my second thing in the world that's fun to do. So I'm around. They'll find me if they want me. I think they will. Well, I'm going to close, and this is Todd. Maybe you'll appreciate this more than anyone. With my little closing line, work on your craft endlessly, be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. That to me is the formula for comics that want to get booked. I like it. But I think it spreads to other things too. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Good night. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.